Knowing I Am. That's the title for the sermon series during Advent, beginning today and continuing through the first Sunday in January. Do you know who you are? Not possible unless you know I am. Join us as we learn who he is. the way God gave the gospel of John or what we call the gospel of John to John, you know that when you come to chapter 13 of John, Jesus has closed rites. He gathers with his disciples and he's teaching his disciples. The teaching begins with the celebration of the Passover. Uh, Jewish people love the Passover and They love to gather for the Passover. This would be the third Passover that Jesus would celebrate with his disciples. It would be the last of the Passovers that he would celebrate during his earthly life and ministry alongside his disciples. And they're gathered there in the upper room in that special place that was prepared for them And not only is Jesus sharing the Passover with them, he is teaching them, showing them, revealing to them who he is. And in the midst of his teaching, he comes to what is recorded for us in John chapter 14, and he speaks these words, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus is preparing his disciples for what is known as what he calls his departure. He's about to leave them. He's about to ascend to the right hand of the Father in heaven. That departure is coming, but the centerpiece of Jesus' departure, the centerpiece even of his life, is his crucifixion. Jesus is about to face the cross. And Jesus knows that the greatest glory of God that will be demonstrated in his life and ministry will come through the crucifixion. Jesus came to earth to die. Behold that baby in the manger, that beautiful baby in the manger. Death is hanging over that manger because the frames that formed the cattle trough where Jesus was lying would eventually become the cross upon which Jesus would die. And in dying, Jesus was accomplishing his mission. It's why he came. Do you recognize this morning that you and I have absolutely no hope apart from the death of Jesus? We are born in sin under the condemnation of God, under the rightful judgment of God. And had Jesus not come to take upon himself our sin and to satisfy the holy justice of God, to turn away the wrath of God from us, to demonstrate the love of God toward us in giving his only son for us, we would have no hope. Jesus is preparing his disciples for that moment when he would be crucified, lifted up 
on the cross and from there laid into the tomb and from there raised up from the tomb to teach his disciples for 40 days and then ascend to the right hand of the Father. There in that upper room as Jesus is with his disciples, he is beginning his time of teaching with them and he says, let not your heart be troubled. Now look over at verse 27, because in chapter 14, verse 27, he says the same thing. At the end of verse 27, beginning with the words, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Here it is, let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. There are two words there that demand our attention so we will understand what Jesus is teaching us. The first is the word heart. Now, like most of you, if you look at uh, my translation from which I'm reading, the English Standard Version, the word heart is plural. Let not your hearts. Look over at verse 27 and you find the same thing. Let not your hearts. But In the original language, it is not plural, it is singular. Because at the center of the life of every human being is a heart. Now, we've taken the term heart, and in our culture, when we use the word heart, we are using it primarily about our emotions, our feelings. I love you with all my heart. That means I get googly-eyed when I look at you. I have these feelings that wash over me. But in the world in which Jesus lived and in the world of the New Testament, the word heart had to do with our will, our decision-making, our direction in life was determined by our heart. Jesus says, don't, don't let your will be shaken. Don't let the direction in which you are living be shaken. You can be settled. Don't let your heart be troubled. Now, the word trouble is found 18 times in the New Testament, seven of them in the Gospel of John. It's used in three basic ways. Jesus is troubled when he comes to the tomb of Lazarus and he sees what sin does to every human being, what sin has done to his friend Lazarus. Lazarus is dead and he's troubled by that, but he's also troubled by his disciples who are so dull of mind and dim of vision that they haven't seen or heard or understood or comprehended the teaching of Jesus. Jesus is troubled. Now, Paul is troubled. In Galatians, it's recorded that he was distressed because the Galatians had bought into a gospel that was no gospel at all. He calls it another gospel. And the word troubled, as it's used here in John, is used of, it's used of believers who simply cannot understand or comprehend who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. We can get so caught up in ourselves and our own concerns and our own lives and our own troubles that we fail to focus on Jesus and remember who he is and what he's about and what he came to do. So Jesus wants to teach us. 
Don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. Now, the centerpiece of his teaching is this I am saying. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But that saying is set in a larger context. And I want you this morning to see the larger context. Because it's when we see the larger context that we can hear, I think, and receive what Jesus is saying when he says, let not your heart be troubled, neither be afraid. Now, you know, if you don't know my story, you know this I am saying of Jesus is the one verse in the whole Bible that God used to save me. I had never read the Bible in my life. I was 16 years old. I didn't never owned a Bible. I'd never opened a Bible because I didn't own a Bible. And I had a friend who was taking me through the Gospel of John. And I had three questions. And I didn't care who answered those questions. I would have become a Buddhist if Buddha had answered those questions. I would have become a Muslim if Muhammad had answered those questions. I didn't care. I had no dog in anybody's religious fight. I just wanted an answer to three questions. Who am I? Why am I here? How can I overcome death? That's all I cared about. And I'll never forget the night in July of 1969 when we were reading this passage in John. And when I read it that night, it was like somebody opened up my heart and said, there it is. It's like God turned a light on in my mind and I saw. How can I overcome death? Through Jesus. Jesus is the life. How can I know who I am? Through Jesus, because he is the truth. How can I know why I'm here? Through Jesus, because Jesus is the way. It was like all of it became clear. That was on a Thursday night on Saturday. I gave my life to Jesus. And I did it based on this one verse. And Jesus has been working in my life and changing my life ever since then. And it just occurred to me this week, believe it or not, it just occurred to me that I've been preaching since 1971 and I've never preached on this verse or its larger context. So you can imagine what fun I've had over the course of the last two weeks just digging into John 14 and understanding the larger context of what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, the way we want to see this larger context this morning is through three questions asked by three disciples that show us three perspectives on the opening and closing saying of Jesus that amplifies for us and illumines for us what Jesus is saying when he says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The first question 
is raised by Thomas in verse 5. And the perspective here is the perspective from Jesus. Who is Jesus? The second question is in verse 8. And it's raised by Philip. And the perspective here is the perspective from God the Father. A perspective from God the Son, a perspective from God the Father. And then the third question is raised by Judas, probably Thaddeus, not Judas Iscariot. And it raises the perspective of the Holy Spirit, particularly the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Verse 1. It doesn't say that Jesus was troubled. It says that Jesus says to his disciples, to his disciples then, and those of us who follow Jesus in this room today, let not your heart be troubled. I I thought about this during this week. From a human perspective, Jesus had every reason to be troubled. You go back to John 13, you know what he announces in John 13? One of you is going to betray me. Now, these are men that he had selected, chosen to go with him. And Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. He looks Peter in the eyes and says, you're going to deny me three times. And now in this chapter, three of his disciples ask questions that frankly sound like stupid questions. Like they don't know anything, like they're totally ignorant of who Jesus is. Can you imagine Jesus counting one? I only got 12. One's going to betray me. One's going to deny me. I got three right here before me who have no clue about who I am or why I'm here. And I'm about to die. So he teaches in response to the questions. Three truths. The first truth is about exclusivity. You believe in God, Jesus says? Uh, That could be an indicative form of expression. You do believe in God, don't you? You believe in God. Imperative, believe also in me. To believe in God is to believe in Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to believe in God. In my Father's house are many rooms. Now, I know. (laughs) believe me, I know that many of you in this room are just like me. I love the King James Version of this, but it's not accurate. I'd love to tell you it is. Because in the King James, it says, "In, in my father's house are many what? Mansions. I love that Southern Gospel song, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that fair land where I'll never grow old. Can you imagine that, living in a mansion forever where you're never going to age? But that's not the word that's used here. It's one of the many places where the King James has not used really reliable manuscripts and has used the Latin Vulgate, and that's what they used here. The Latin for this word that's used here is mansionis, from which we get the English word mansions, obviously. Uh, The Greek word means a dwelling place, a place to abide. There are many abiding places. I have a room for you. I have a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
I'm going to prepare a place for you. Turn to Mark chapter 13. Because what Jesus is referencing here is that last day when he's going to come back. And on that last day, he's going to gather his church to himself. And we will be with him in the new heaven and the new earth forever and ever and ever. Mark chapter 13, verse 24. In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man. They will see the Lord Jesus Christ coming in clouds with great power and glory and he will send out the angels and the angels will gather his elect, his people from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, Jesus says to his church. He says to you and me, we who are believers, there's going to come a day when I'm going to come get you. I'm going to gather you to myself and you will be with me forever and ever. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas... Thomas, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Now, before you beat up on Thomas, notice his first word. What does he say? Thomas said to him, what? Lord. I bet you, every one of you in this room who's a believer, you've got a hundred questions in your mind and soul that you don't understand about Scripture and about how God works and all of that. And you sometimes are afraid to ask because it seems like that's doubt. Well, Thomas wasn't afraid to ask. Neither should you be. Lord, Lord, uh, where are you going? <laughs> yeah, how can we know the way? We don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. And Jesus, th this is what he says. I am the way. There is no other way. I am the truth. There is no other truth. There, I am the life. I'm the only one who is life. So no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, Thomas, if you really knew me, in the depths of knowing me, you would have known my Father. And from now on, you will know him because Jesus is anticipating what he's about to teach about him revealing himself to them through the ongoing presence and power of the Holy Spirit. There is no other way to God but through Jesus. Do you know there was a time in churches in America where you could preach that truth and teach that truth and people would stand up and say, hallelujah, amen. Not anymore. Not anymore. It is one of the most, if not the most, debated, questioned, interrogated, doubted truths of Scripture. You would be surprised at the people you know who deep down inside think there are many ways to God. The ultimate issue is love God, love other people. 
That's what many people think. Nothing assaults the conscience of modern people quite like this truth. Exclusivity, one person says, is is not about those who get in, that is, get into a relationship with God. Exclusivity is primarily about the reality that according to Scripture, and particularly according to Jesus, there's only one way in. There's no other way to God except through Jesus. Then Philip steps on the scene. Philip asks a related question, very close to the issue of exclusivity. He asks a question about specificity. He wants to nail it down. Let's be clear here. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and you still do not know me, Philip? You don't know me intellectually. You don't know me intimately. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you say that you've shown us the Father? The only way of access to God is through Jesus, because Jesus is God himself, the great I am. And it's manifest in his words. It's manifest in his works. It's manifest in his way of life. That's what he says. In verse number 10, do not believe that, do you not believe that I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, the words that I say to you, the words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe on account of the works them Selves. Don't let your heart be troubled. I am the way of access to God, and when you come to God through me, you belong to God forever, and God provides for you and protects you and enables you and empowers you because God has revealed himself exclusively and specifically in me. And then comes the transition in verses 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. How is that possible? Jesus spent his entire life in ministry in one very specific geographical area. But when Jesus died on the cross, was raised from the grave, ascended to the Father, and sent his Holy Spirit, he set loose the church as the witness to Jesus, not just in Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee, but to the ends of the earth. And Jesus gave us the work to do that he was doing, which was the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom of God, and we get the privilege of proclaiming that all over the world. You and I, you and I use the internet every day, right? I just had a thing pop up on my phone this morning about my average daily usage of Facebook this past week, and when I saw it, my first thought was, Ann's been on my phone. It was embarrassing. I'm just telling you. Well, Al, why don't you tell us how long you were on the phone on average daily usage this week on Facebook? No, no. I wouldn't want you to know because you should be embarrassed that your pastor was spending that much time on Facebook, even if it was Christmas week. 
Why did God give us all this social media? Why does he allow us to have it? Why? Because it is a marvelous means to get the gospel out to people. That's why. It's an instrument for the proclamation of the truth of God to go where Jesus could not go physically, but we can go spiritually. So Jesus says, greater works will you do because I'm going to the Father. And then look at verse 13. This is where we can get twisted up. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, there are two things that I want you to see here before we move forward, because this is very important. Jesus says, whatever you ask, what? What is the phrase there? Verse 13, whatever you ask, my name. Then he repeats that in verse 15. If you ask anything in my name. Well, what does it mean to ask in the name of Jesus? Doesn't that just mean that we ask for whatever we want or desire at the end and we say, and in Jesus' name? No, that's not at all what it means. What it means, Jesus tells us, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do. Verse 13, let me slow down. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son, what does a believer want more than anything else in the world? We want to glorify God in everything we say and do so that Jesus might be exalted through our lives and that shapes our prayer life. We know what to ask for because we're increasingly consumed and controlled and compelled by Jesus and his lordship in our lives. So we move to verse 15, where the perspective is the perspective of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who belong to Jesus. And the question here is the question raised by Judas, not Iscariot, in verse 22. And the issue here is integrity. One of the reasons Christianity or so-called Christianity is in our cultures in such trouble is because there are so many people in our churches, and I pray none of you belong to this group. There's so many people in our churches who want a relationship with Jesus that we can be sure we're going to heaven when we die, but while we're here, whatever we pray for, we get. We want to be secure that we're going to heaven, but prosperous while we're here. And we never think about why Jesus is in our life in the first place. What does it mean to have Jesus in your life? We don't ever quite get to verse 15. And this is what Jesus teaches us. The question, Judas, not Iscariot, verse 22, chapter 14. Lord, how is it that you will manifest or reveal or show, you could translate it any of those ways, 
How is it that you will show yourself to us, that is, those who belong to you, and not to the world? That's as clear as it can be. Jesus is not making himself known to the world. Jesus is making himself known to those who are his. Those who are his are in the world, but not of the world. We are under the word of God, and we delight in being under the word of God. So what marks, what is it that marks the life of every child of God as we live our lives in the world? It's one word. And it's one word in which we delight as God's people. It's the word obedience. We delight in obeying God. And the way we obey God is by listening to, longing for, loving, treasuring, trusting, adoring, giving ourselves to his word. One of the delights that I've had in this series on the I Am sayings is returning to reading a man I have not read in some years, not because I don't love this man, but because I just hadn't had the occasion. When I first became a Christian, there were two men that had a profound impact on my life through their writings and their teachings. One was Vance Havner. The other was Warren Wiersbe. Warren Wiersbe is one of the greatest teachers of the Word of God who's ever lived. And so I've been able to work through Warren Wiersbe's teaching on the I Am sayings of Jesus. It's been a delight This is what he says, and I quote, It is not possible to receive the blessing of God without a clear commitment to obeying God. End quote. It is not possible to receive the blessing of God without a commitment to obeying God. And right after that, he writes, This quote shook me. I'm just going to tell you. It shook me. I quote, What we delight in is what we will sacrifice to enjoy. If we delight in the word of God, we will gladly sacrifice sleep to be awake each morning, as did David and Jesus. We will gladly invest money and tools for Bible study. And if our witness for Jesus and obedience to God's truth cost us friends, we will pray for our friends, and we will trust God to give us new friends. The way you treat the Bible, he ends this quote, the way you treat the Bible is exactly the way you treat Jesus, end quote. The Bible is the instrument for obedience. What does obedience look like? Very quickly. If we obey God, we obey God by keeping his word or we guard his word. Jesus says in verses 15 and 16, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, this is a real condition. How do I know I love God? I'm seeking to keep his commandments. I treasure them. I trust them. I love them. And I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Look over at verses 23 and 24. 
Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and the father will love him and we will come to him. We will come to him and we will make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. How do you know somebody doesn't love Jesus? Because they're not keeping the words of God. Because the word of God comes from God through Jesus by the power of spirit for us to listen, to learn, and to obey. Secondly, people who obey God, obey God by knowing and growing in the truth of God. Verse 17, even the spirit of truth. Jesus says, I'm going to give you the spirit of truth. The world cannot receive the Holy Spirit because the world does not see the Holy Spirit or know him. But you know him because he's in you. And because he's in you, he is exalting the Lord Jesus. And he's compelling you to love the word of God and listen to the word of God and learn the word of God and live the word of God, verses 25 and 26. These things Jesus said, I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. If we obey God, we keep his word. If we obey God, we want to know the truth of God and grow in the truth. And thirdly, if we obey God, we become a part of God's family. And as a part of God's family, we are surrounded. We are surrounded by people who have the same passion for God that we have and are pursuing the same purpose that we are pursuing. Listen to what Jesus says, verses 18 through 21. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you all together. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, this is the one who loves me, and him who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. Peace. I give to you. A person who wants to obey God is a person who loves the church. Because the church is where we find people who have the same passion for Jesus that we have and who are pursuing the same purpose. I don't know how many of you feel this. I feel it. I feel it. As the pastor of this church, I feel it. And COVID hasn't helped anything. But there was a time when this church was so encouraging to me because it was the first church I ever served where there were so many, particularly men, who had a deep passion for Jesus. That's all they cared about. It's all they wanted to talk about. Had a purpose to pursue with a passion, the purpose of God. And it was so challenging for me. But I've watched Satan take so many away here, not just to other places, but take people who are here and distract our hearts and grab our minds so that we like coming to church. We like to hear good singing and good preaching. We like to do good activities, but where is that? 
Where is that? I'm dying for that group of people that will have this passion for Jesus. That's what the church is. Church is not a social club. Church is not a religious organization. Church is not an institution where we gather to go through the rituals. The church is the family of God and the body of Christ turned loose in the world to assault the kingdom of Satan as a group of mighty men and wonderful women who go into the world as people who when we gather to drink coffee or to eat a meal together. We want to talk about what God is teaching us in his word and what we're learning from his word and how we're living it out in the world. That's that's the kind of people to whom Jesus looks at and looks into our eyes. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. I have a postscript. Here's my postscript. As God is growing us as believers, and if you're a believer, God is growing you. Did you hear that? He is growing you and he is changing you. That's what he does. But God grows us at different paces. <laughs> he doesn't grow us all at the same pace. That's why you and I, we have to learn to be patient with ourselves. And we have to learn how to be patient with one another. Because God's growing us the way he wants to grow us. In 1969, when I read, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. You know what I knew about Jesus? That's about it. I just knew he said that, that it answered my questions, and that I needed Jesus. Now, praise God, he's grown me a lot since then. But you know what Al Wright knows about his life? I got a lot of growing to do. A lot of changing to do. You do too. And it's something you do better together. It's impossible to do alone. Don't be shaken. Live settled in your relationship with Jesus and grow to become all he wants you to be. Father, we thank you for, for your word, the power of your word. God, I think that, uh, I don't think, I know there are many of us in this room that can say honestly today, we, we recognize the world is too much with us and we, <laughs> we crave the world more than we should. And we come in repentance to you today, God, asking you to bring us back through repentance to that place where we crave you. We desire you above and beyond all else. And we want to go tell others what you have done in Jesus Christ to save sinners. We pray in his name. Amen.
Father, as we uh, dismiss today, we we want to remember our brothers and sisters in the city of Nashville, Tennessee, and pray for churches that have been affected by the bombing there and families. And we are so grateful, God, for those police officers that were in place and that uh, were doing what they're called to do and getting people out of harm's way. God, we live in a time when so many of our men and women who wear that uniform have been maligned and mistreated and abused, and uh, we just stand today to say thank you for them and for all that they do, and we uh, pray your blessings on them, and uh, we pray that now we would be dismissed by your great grace, that we would go in peace. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. In Jesus' name, amen.